Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. They sat around the table, candlelight flickering on their faces, each with their instructions. They were going to do what four years of war could not, avenge the South and rid the nation of this tyrant. History would remember their names after this night. Well, that's what they had hoped. In truth, history would remember one of their names because most people think of the Lincoln assassination as the act of a single deranged person. But that's not the case. The truth is, there was a whole conspiracy behind the death that involved a vast number of participants. This episode is about the rest of them, the ones who don't have roadside markers or their childhood homes preserved as they were in the 1800s. Those who plotted and planned alongside John Wilkes Booth, who were captured, charged, and convicted— with some even executed after a controversial trial in the wake of President Abraham Lincoln's assassination, but who have been crowded out of American history. Here are the alleged crimes of Lewis Powell, David Harold, George Atzerat, Samuel Arnold, Michael O'Glaughlin, John Surratt, and his mother Mary. These were the other players who helped pull off the tragic events of that fateful night at Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865, during a performance of the satirical comedy, Our American Cousin. That day, a Good Friday, no less, would shatter whatever sense of stability the country had managed to claw back in the aftermath of the bloodiest war in the nation's history. It would also cement a national division still evident to this day. Before we delve into John Wilkes Booth's co-conspirators, it would help to talk about the best-known assassin of the crew for just a minute. Born in Maryland, Booth was an outspoken Confederate sympathizer, and around the 1860 presidential election, he was initiated into the Knights of the Golden Circle. The KGC, founded in 1854, was part of the Native Americanism movement, a huge anti-immigration backlash against the wave of Irish and German immigrants of the 1840s. Booth wanted to help the Confederacy while stopping short of actually joining it. When General Ulysses S. Grant, head of the Union armies, suspended prisoner of war exchanges with the Confederate Army in March of 1864, Booth recruited a group as part of a plot to rectify the situation. That included the aforementioned accomplices, Arnold, Atzerott, Harold, O'Glaughlin, Powell, and the Surratts, who all gathered to hear Booth's plan which was to kidnap President Lincoln in order to blackmail the Union and Grant into resuming prisoner exchanges. 
If you don't know, the number of times people tried to kidnap Lincoln is a lot. The idea of capturing or kidnapping a United States president may seem preposterous on the surface, but at the time, it was quite feasible. This is writer Edward Steers Jr. speaking in a Biography Channel documentary. Lincoln was unprotected. He moved about frequently on his own, and he traveled as much as three miles to his summer residence and soldier's home, often unattended by himself. One of Booth's kidnapping plans was scheduled for March 17, 1865, when Lincoln was supposed to attend a play at the Campbell General Hospital in northwestern Washington. So the group had their roles assigned and went to the hospital to await the president's arrival, except Lincoln didn't show. He decided to go to a ceremony at the National Hotel instead. With that plan thwarted, Booth's plot to kidnap the president fell apart. More than that, though, his beloved Confederacy was also in shambles. Its capital, Richmond, fell on April 3rd, and Robert E. Lee surrendered the bulk of the Confederate army to Grant on April 9th. Incensed, Booth and his co-conspirators decided their only option left was to kill the president and others in his inner circle. This is a plot to decapitate the entire federal government. This is from America's Untold Stories. This is Seward, who's the Secretary of State. They're going to kill Seward. They're going to kill Andrew Johnson, the Vice President of the United States. And they're going to kill General Grant. And they're going to kill Lincoln. Now, Booth was a legit famous actor in this era. As in, when I searched his name in newspaper archives between 1860 and 1863, dozens of mentions cropped up. Most were for advertisements of productions in which he was cast. It's worth noting that most cast members were not mentioned in these ads, meaning that Booth was among the highest profile in the production, thus warranting a newspaper mention. Booth's fame is at least partly responsible for his ability to attract any followers for his plot to target Lincoln in the first place. Writer James L. Swanson. Many of them didn't join the conspiracy because they hated Abraham Lincoln, They joined the conspiracy because they loved and admired John Wilkes Booth. Anyway, because he was famous, Booth was able to walk into Ford's Theater, where the president, Mrs. Lincoln, and General and Mrs. Grant were supposed to attend a play later that night on April 14, 1865. Booth knew the layout of the theater and was able to move freely about without suspicion to set up his crime. Greeting the staff, he made sure to tell anyone who saw him that he was only there to pick up his mail, which was a common practice for traveling actors. Satisfied everything was prepared, he went to Mary Surratt's boarding house in D.C. and asked her to take a package with her to her tavern in Southern Maryland. According to James Swanson in his book Manhunt, The Twelve-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer, He also reminded her to tell tenant Louis Weishman to prepare the guns and ammo Booth had stored there on his last visit. The conspirators met one final time just before 9 p.m. Each man around the table had his assignment. Booth, obviously going to Ford's Theater to kill President Abraham Lincoln, but also to kill General Grant, who was supposed to accompany Lincoln that night. Lewis Powell, a.k.a. Lewis Payne, assigned to kill Secretary of State William Seward. David Harold assigned to show Powell how to get to Seward's house, as Powell wasn't familiar with D.C. 
George Atzerott, assigned to stake out the Kirkwood Hotel a few blocks away from Ford's theater to kill Vice President Andrew Johnson. Grant and his wife Julia decided not to go to the theater that night, supposedly because Julia and Mary Todd Lincoln didn't get along. Apparently, the Lincolns were turned down by a bunch of people before Major Henry Rathbone and his fiancée, Clara Harris, agreed to accompany the president and Mrs. Lincoln to Ford's theater. General Grant and Julia instead traveled to New Jersey on the night train, and Booth shot Lincoln in the back of the head before escaping into the night. Lincoln was carried to a house across the street and died the following morning. Modern histories and history classes tend to stop, if not with Lincoln's final breath, then at least with Booth's demise soon after. But that's only the beginning of the story. A quick warning, I'm about to say a lot of names, and a surprising of them begin with John. But that's the point of this episode, to talk about the people you're less likely to have heard of before. After shooting Lincoln, Booth ran, crossing the Navy Bridge into Maryland about 30 minutes after mortally wounding the president. In an 1860s twist of fate, there was an army sentry on the bridge, but there was no way for him to have found out about the assassination attempt, so he let Booth pass. Harold, assigned to be a liaison in the Seward killing, also crossed the bridge, even though it was, at that point, illegal for civilians to cross the bridge after 9 p.m., a wartime restriction that hadn't yet been lifted. Meeting up, Booth and Harold stopped in Surrattsville to get the weapons and supplies innkeeper Mary Surratt had been told to ready for them. Their next stop was the home of Dr. Samuel Mudd, a subject of much historical debate along the lines of, was he a criminal or not? Booth needed medical attention because he had broken his leg at Ford's Theater, See, that's what happens when you shoot a president and then jump off a balcony. There's debate among historians as to whether Booth and Mudd knew each other before Booth arrived at 4 a.m. April 15th with his leg injury. If Dr. Mudd knew Booth, knew about the plot, and knew to expect Booth, then he should be counted among the conspirators. Otherwise, it's fair to think Mudd would have felt obligated to help Booth either way because of that whole Hippocratic oath demanding doctors treat patients no matter what. And besides, he couldn't have known yet about Lincoln having been shot anyway, at least not unless he knew in advance. Whatever the case... Dr. Mudd examined Booth, removed the boot from the leg, and determined it was broken. He set the broken leg and told Booth that he needed to rest. And so he took him upstairs and put him to bed in an upstairs bedroom. At only 32 years old, Samuel Mudd was a graduate of St. John's College and Georgetown College, which is now Georgetown University. After earning his medical degree in 1856, Mudd and his wife Sarah moved to his ancestral home, a tobacco plantation covering more than 200 acres near Bryantown, Maryland, about 30 minutes from Mary Surratt's tavern. Booth and Harold were allowed to stay at Mudd's for the rest of the night and the next morning, leaving early in the afternoon. Once authorities connected Mudd to Booth's escape, he was arrested, even though he swore he had not recognized Booth in the dark candlelight and that he didn't know President Lincoln had been shot, Mudd was convicted of conspiring to kill the president. Sentenced to a lifetime of hard labor, he was incarcerated at Fort Jefferson in Florida. 
now decommissioned and run by the Park Service, Fort Jefferson wasn't yet 20 years old when Mudd arrived in July 1865. Almost two months later, according to Thomas Reed's book, America's Fortress, Mudd attempted to escape by trying to stow away on a steamship when relief troops arrived. Quickly discovered, he was put into solitary, called the Dungeon, at Fort Jefferson. But Mudd earned some goodwill when he proved crucial to the survival of prisoners and soldiers during a yellow fever epidemic in 1867. Partially because of this service, he was pardoned in February 1869 by Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson. Returning to Bryantown, he lived until 1883, where he died at the age of 49. David Harold and Booth, after spending the night at Dr. Mudd's house, continued their escape through southern Maryland. The plan was to travel south, cross the Potomac River into Virginia, and into the loving bosom of the Confederacy. In my favorite part of their escape, they rowed for hours and landed, thinking they had finally reached Virginia, only to find out they'd landed on the exact same shore from whence they left. Anyway, after Booth was cornered by Union soldiers and killed on the front porch of Richard Garrett's farm, Harold was taken into custody and transported back to D.C. According to the National Park Service, his defense team planned to portray Harold as, quote, dull-witted and simple-minded, end quote, in an effort to convince the court he had been easily manipulated by Booth and therefore was not responsible for his actions. This absolutely didn't work. He was convicted and executed on July 7th, 1865. This next part of the Lincoln assassination conspiracy is left out of most summations, which is surprising. It's also surprising that it hasn't been made into a blockbuster movie starring Zac Efron or something. I mean, there's seriously a resemblance. Lewis Powell, also known as Lewis Payne, was an old-school Florida man, having fought for the 2nd Florida Infantry during the Civil War. Lewis Powell, tall and powerful, was a former Confederate prisoner of war who would provide the muscle for the kidnapping conspiracy. He was wounded at the Battle of Gettysburg in July 1863 and captured by Union forces. Once recovered, Powell managed to escape and was introduced to Booth by John Surratt. As another soldier, Powell was a major asset. He was the muscle. His assignment the night of April 14, 1865, was to kill the Secretary of State, William Seward. Now, Seward should have been the easiest on the list to kill, as he was recovering from a carriage accident just 10 days earlier. He was literally confined to his bed. After Harold led Powell to Seward's house, Harold jetted off to meet up with Booth, while Powell took an 1858 Whitney revolver and a Bowie knife and set out on his mission. Because of Seward's carriage accident, his entire family had gathered around him, unsure if they were watching him recuperate or sitting at his deathbed. In addition to the family, the house on Lafayette Square also contained their servants, messengers from the State Department so Seward could continue working, and two Union soldiers assigned to protect the secretary. The family agreed to take shifts at Seward's bedside so he was never left alone. 
According to Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin, Seward's daughter, Fanny, was on bedside duty until 11 p.m. All signs pointed to a quiet night. When Powell knocked at 10.10 p.m., a servant answered the door. Powell said that he had been sent by Seward's doctor with a new medicine mixture. It was so important it needed to be delivered in person immediately, even past 10 p.m., the servant later testified that he told Powell, quote, he could not go up, that if he would give me the medicine, I would tell Mr. Seward how to take it, end quote. But Powell continued to insist. America's untold stories again. He punches the butler in the face, knocks him out, goes up the stairs where he encounters Seward's son, and he takes his forty-five Army pistol puts it to Seward's son's head, pulls the trigger, and the gun misfires. So he takes the gun and beats his brains in until his brains are literally coming out of the back of his skull. Private Robinson, one of the guards, heard the fight and ran to block the door, but he was no match for the adrenaline-filled Powell, who burst into the room brandishing a bowie knife in one hand and his broken pistol in the other. Slashing frantically, he cut Robinson across the head and knocked him to the ground. He turned toward Seward. The only person left to stand between the assassin and Seward was now Fanny, who was only 20 years old. According to Doris Kearns Goodwin, Fanny begged him not to kill her father. Hearing the word kill, Seward woke, seeing Powell's face for the first time, before Powell began stabbing the secretary furiously. And in an insane turn of events, Seward had been fitted with a neck splint after his carriage accident to secure his broken jaw. And since it was 1865, the splint was made of metal. So when Powell was stabbing at Seward's face and neck, the knife blade was deflected away from the jugular vein. Growing frustrated, Powell repositioned himself and stabbed again. This time, his blade found purchase, cutting Seward's face and jaw. Fanny's screams echoed through the house and finally woke another of her brothers, Gus, who rushed into the room. He, along with Robinson, who had finally gotten back on his feet, managed to pull Powell off of the bed. But Powell still wielded the knife and slashed at them both, escaping from their clutches. Powell then ran down the stairs, even managing to stab yet another person on his way. The State Department messenger, Emmerich Hansel, who had been moved in so Seward could continue the business of the nation, had come out of his room to see what the commotion was all about. Powell stabbed Hansen in the back before running out of the door and into the night. The three-story home now housed multiple wounded people, including the Secretary of State, who was bleeding out in his bed. A servant was sent to fetch Seward's doctor while his uninjured children searched the rest of the house for any other assassins. Dr. Verdi thought Seward's jugular had been cut when he saw the amount of blood soaking the sheets. He described Seward as looking like, quote, an exsanguinated corpse, end quote. Despite that, the man miraculously survived. After treating the various wounded, astonished, Verdi asked Seward's wife, this was the work of one man? Powell was not familiar with the D.C. slash Southern Maryland area, and it took him a few days to reach the planned rendezvous point, Mary Surratt's house. 
When he arrived there on April 17th, his bad luck got worse because it wasn't Mrs. Surratt who answered the door. It was Major Smith, one of the men tasked with hunting down the assassins. Powell and Surratt were both arrested and transported to D.C. to await trial. In addition to Lincoln and Seward, the final target on the night of April 14th was Vice President Andrew Johnson. Enter here, George Atzerat, only 30 years old, who was born in Germany and worked as a carriage painter and boatman. During the war, it was suspected that he used his boat to carry supplies and spies across the Potomac for the Confederacy. It was precisely those boat skills that Booth had wanted for the 1864 kidnapping. After that was canceled, Atzerat was recruited to be part of the assassination plot instead, although it's pretty clear his heart wasn't really in it. That's because this victim was possibly the most controversial choice, as Johnson himself was the son of the South. Before the war, Johnson had been a senator from Tennessee. Once the Confederacy was formed, he became the only Southern senator to remain with the Union. As their aim was to avenge the South, why would they want to kill a fellow Southerner? Well, to them, he was a turncoat because he refused to go with his compatriots. He supported the Union. And, worst of all, he had agreed to be Lincoln's vice president in 1864. George's orders had been to wait at the hotel, go to Johnson's room precisely at 10.15 p.m., and shoot him, according to historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. On April 14th, George rented the room directly above Johnson's. Booth also stopped by the Kirkwood that morning and left the vice president a note saying, quote, I don't wish to disturb you. Are you at home? J. Wilkes Booth, end quote. Some people believe Booth was trying to pin down Johnson's itinerary, but others think he was trying to implicate Johnson on the off chance George didn't follow through on his task. In hindsight, Booth maybe had some good instincts on that front. A bit before go time, George gathered a gun and a knife and went to the bar in the hotel lobby, apparently to steel himself with some liquid courage before killing the vice president. He ended up getting drunk as hell. Writer James L. Swanson again. Atzerodt never went up those stairs. He never knocked on the door. He never tried to assassinate the vice president of the United States. He was the only conspirator of Booth who failed his master that night. George wandered the streets, threw the knife away, then rented a room at the Pennsylvania House Hotel, where he promptly fell asleep. That means the next morning, George would have woken up, likely hungover, to learn that Lincoln was dead and that most of his co-conspirators had been arrested or were running from arguably the largest manhunt in U.S. history. Unsure of what to do, especially as the only immigrant in the crew, George fled to a cousin's farm in Germantown, Maryland, about 25 miles northwest of Washington. He was arrested there on April 20th, and despite having bowed out of the plan, was convicted and executed alongside the others. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but there's one last conspirator to quickly bring into the story. Michael O'Glaughlin, a childhood friend of Booth's, was one of the few involved who had served in the Confederate Army. Having known the actor for so long, he was one of the first recruited for the 64 kidnapping plot. When that plot failed, Michael decided to step back from his friend. 
judging Booth's plans as not at all feasible. According to the National Park Service, it's unlikely for Michael to have had any role in the assassination, but even so, he turned himself in to the authorities only days after it happened. And in the frantic trial, he was convicted as a conspirator and sentenced to spend the rest of his natural life at Fort Jefferson along with Dr. Mudd. Michael died in that prison during the 1867 yellow fever epidemic. Now, you know the results of the trial in this case, but how it unfolded is worthy of its own exploration. This was a trial for which, by the summer of 1865, the entire nation was rabid. John Wilkes Booth, of course, couldn't be charged because he was killed on a farmer's porch within days of the shooting. Historian Terry Alford. The only person, of course, who died in the manhunt was Booth. All of his friends were captured and put on trial, and they had to face something in a way even worse than a bullet in the neck. They had to face national scorn, opprobrium, and a military trial. Following their arrests, Mary Surratt and Dr. Mudd were held at the old Capitol jail while the other six were imprisoned on two ironclad ships, the Montauk and the Saugus. When the trial start date grew closer, all of the conspirators were moved to the old Arsenal Penitentiary. Mudd and Surratt continued to receive special treatment, though. They were the only two not forced to wear a canvas hood that covered their entire head and face. In addition to those already described, dozens were arrested. I mean, basically anyone who had literally any contact or association with the conspirators. That included Junius Booth, John's brother, who was in Cincinnati at the time of the assassination, James Ford, the owner of Ford's Theater, Louis Weishman, who had rented a room at Mary's boarding house, and James Pumphrey, from whom Booth rented a horse. These men would be released without charges eventually, but the sheer number of arrests pointed to the barely concealed panic of what was left of the Lincoln administration. Similarly, the new president ordered the conspirators to be tried by a military tribunal, not a civilian court. Some within the government protested the use of a military court, including a former U.S. Attorney General, Edward Bates, and Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells. James Speed, the current Attorney General at the time, referred to the defendants as enemy combatants and the fact that D.C. was under martial law when the plot was carried out to justify using a military tribunal. A simple majority of the jury, all military officers, was needed to convict, and two-thirds was needed for a death sentence. And the only avenue for appeal was President Johnson himself. Side note, the practice of civilians being tried by military tribunals was banned the following year, in 1866, in a separate Supreme Court case. So the protesters may have had a point. Although Secretary of War Edwin Stanton wanted a swift trial ending in an execution, the trial lasted seven long weeks. According to the University of Missouri-Kansas City Law School, the evidence against Powell and Harold, the men behind the attack on Secretary of State Seward, was beyond question. But the evidence against the others was far more circumstantial. Witnesses testified that a man named Ned Spangler had agreed to help Booth on the evening of April 14th 
But the prosecution's claim that Spangler was a co-conspirator and had full knowledge of Booth's plan fell short of convincing the tribunal, so he was sentenced to six years in prison. As previously mentioned, Dr. Samuel Mudd and Michael O'Glocklin were also sent to prison, along with Samuel Arnold, another alleged co-conspirator. All four men were sentenced to Fort Jefferson in the Florida Keys. Arnold, Mudd, and Spangler were pardoned by President Johnson, partly for their help in the yellow fever epidemic, and O'Glocklin was the one who died in the same epidemic in 1867. The remaining four, Powell, Harold, Atzrat, and Mary Surratt, were convicted and sentenced to death by hanging. For the first three, this was a welcome result for the entire country. The declaration of sentencings were printed verbatim in newspapers like the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times. Papers like the Washington Evening Star and the Philadelphia Inquirer dedicated entire pages to the execution and the life stories of the conspirators, even printing extra editions. Huge headlines were splashed across front pages. Hung! The murder of Abraham Lincoln avenged. Mary Surratt, however, was an entirely different story. While President Johnson considered her the, quote, keeper of the nest that hatched the egg, end quote, simply owning the boarding house wasn't enough for conviction. The prosecution could prove she lied to investigators, but Mary's downfall came with the testimonies of two men, Louis Weishman and John Lloyd. Weishman, who rented a room in her boarding house, testified that on the Tuesday before the assassination, John Wilkes Booth gave him $10 to hire a buggy for Mary Surratt. His reason? She needed to travel to Surrattville to collect a small debt. On April 14th, he was asked to hire another buggy for another two-hour ride to Surrattville, where he waited for her as she went inside and then returned to D.C. And who did he see before the end of this evening? Well, Booth, of course. John Lloyd knew the Surratt family for years. When Mary's husband, yet another John, died, John Lloyd rented their tavern in Surrattville. This allowed for Mary and her son, John, to move to D.C. and open their boarding house. John Lloyd testified to the tribunal that John Surratt, Harold, and Atzrat had come to the tavern five or six weeks before the assassinations to drop off two carbines and ammunition. The next time those guns were mentioned was when Mary told him, three days before the assassination, that they would be needed soon. Then, on April 14th, he returned home around 5 p.m. to find Mary there. She told him that the shooting irons would need to be ready that very night. Mary's defense attempted to paint Lloyd as an alcoholic who shouldn't be trusted, but it fell on deaf ears. Mary Surratt was convicted and was headed for the gallows. But there was a problem. Mary was a woman and a Catholic. America was incredibly nervous about executing a woman. Even members of the tribunal recommended commuting her sentence to life in prison on account of her gender. Her defense highlighted her Catholicism in the hopes of causing further doubt about the death penalty. Five clergymen testified on her behalf to speak to her general character and loyalty. Mary's daughter, Anna, worked tirelessly to get some kind of evidence to save her mother. In the book, Andrew Johnson, A Biographical Companion, 
Anna was described as having repeatedly written to the judge advocate general for clemency. She also tried several times to meet with President Johnson to beg for mercy, but she was never allowed in to see him. The night before the execution, Anna and the priests who had been attending to Mary visited with Lewis Powell, asking him for help. He did write a statement in support of Mary's innocence, but it had no impact on authorities. Two days after Independence Day, 1865, the conspirators were told that they would be executed the following day. Two priests and Anna stayed by Mary's side throughout the night until she was taken from her cell right before noon. According to historian Thomas Goodrich, Anna was allowed to say goodbye to her mother, and then her screams echoed through the old Arsenal penitentiary as the guards had to forcibly remove her. At 1.15 p.m. on the 7th of July, the four condemned climbed the stairs to the gallows, their shackles clanging on the wooden steps. As the order of execution was read, they were seated so their bodies could be bound. Traditionally, the condemned were bound with a white cloth tied around their chest, binding their arms to them, and around their thighs and ankles. An additional tie was added to Mary below the knees for modesty's sake. Powell tried again to save her, yelling that she was innocent and, quote, didn't deserve to die with the rest of us, end quote. But all four were led to the trap doors with a noose around each neck. A quick drop later, and the United States had executed its first woman. While it felt as though the national nightmare was over, there was still one person of interest remaining, John Surratt Jr., He had told everyone that he was in Elmira, New York, during the assassination, insisting he had nothing to do with it. But when he learned of his old friend's conspiracy, John fled to Montreal, taking shelter with a Catholic priest. He remained with Father Charles Boucher until his mother was executed. From there, according to Blood on the Moon, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, he traveled to Europe under an assumed name, landing in Liverpool. Eventually, he ended up in Papal States, a.k.a. the future Vatican City. While there, he joined the Papal Zouave, an infantry regiment of unmarried Catholic men dedicated to the defense of the Papal States. Using the name John Watson, he thought he was safe, until an old friend from Montreal recognized him and alerted the U.S. Embassy. That was early 1867, before John Surratt returned to Maryland for his trial. Being tried by a military court had been declared unconstitutional, so John was tried by a Maryland civilian court. After two months of trial, a mistrial was declared, and he was released. The statute of limitations had run out on all charges. John Surratt was free to live out the rest of his life, dying in 1916 at the age of 72, never convicted of anything. Now, when we today think about something happening in the 1860s, it's easy to shrug it off as something so ancient the repercussions have long fizzled out. But in truth, this is much more recent than it seems. In 1956, the last living witness who had been at Ford Theater the night Booth shot Lincoln appeared on a TV show called I've Got a Secret. The show format involved a celebrity panel trying to guess in a 20-question sort of way what secret the surprise guest was hiding. 
Well, now to help pacify his secret, I will tell you it concerns something that he witnessed. <clears throat> and Bill Cohen will start with you. Something that he saw, something he saw happen. This thing that Mr. Seymour saw, does it uh, have uh, historical significance? Uh, does this have historical significance, Mr. Seymour? I would say yes, wouldn't you, sir? Mm -hmm. Mr. Seymour, would this person have ever been president of the United States? Oh, I think he would, would. Would he it was. have been Abraham Lincoln? It was Abraham Lincoln, yes. You witnessed something to do with Abraham Lincoln. Was this a pleasant thing? Not very pleasant, I don't think. I nope. was scared to death, so. He said, no, he was scared to death. Would it have had anything to do with the, the President Lincoln's death, by any chance? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, yes. Did Mr. Seymour witness the shooting of President Lincoln? It's a weird thing to hear applauded, especially knowing just how devastated the country had been when the shooting happened. The plot to kill Lincoln not only led to more lives lost with the executions of multiple collaborators, but it also slowed Reconstruction and arguably allowed the post-Civil War divide to fester so much that we still feel the effects today. To research this story, Jen Erdman first tapped her own curriculum as this is a subject she teaches at the collegiate level. Her sources include Lincoln's Assassins, a complete account of their capture, trial, and punishment by Roy Shamley Jr., and Team of Rivals, the political genius of Abraham Lincoln by Doris Kearns Goodwin. We also tap contemporary news articles on the assassination, the subsequent hunt for Lincoln's killers, and the eventual trials. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>